0: If you are dealing with an autoimmune disorder, which I am, then I strongly suggest you not only listen to this podcast, but also listen to others to which I linked in the show notes. Those other interviews go deeper into the science. You also should buy a copy of Dr. Gundry's book, The Plant Paradox. I can tell you the following I have gone gluten free for up to 10 years to no avail, and I did that long before it was fashionable. But in the last two years, since I first heard a Dr. Gundry interview, I've played with being lectin-free and my shoulder pain of 36 years disappeared, as did recurring elbow pain. Then when I experimented by cheating with comfort foods, I wound up with severe ankle pain, and that too went away when I got strictly lectin-free. Recently, I saw my GI, who runs the department at Cornell New York Hospital. And I mentioned lectins, and she said that was a big area of focus for their immunology research team. So it is catching on. And another key area not discussed today are fungi and candida in particular. But Dr. Gundry's diet and supplement routine make it very difficult for those pathogenic bacteria to thrive or even survive in a meaningful quantity. Quite frankly, if you're looking for any edge you can get, then I would say Dr. Gundry's Plant Paradox book is a top 10 tome to be kept at or near the top of the stack of your medical books. I'm not saying it will work for everyone, but as Dr. Sydney Baker and Dr. Nancy O'Hara like to say, the treatment is a test in and of itself, and my lectin tests have proven to be tremendous game changers for me. I hope many of you or those whom you are helping will benefit as well. And if you're wondering on what authority Dr. Gundry speaks, He did his undergraduate work at Yale in evolutionary biology and became a heart and transplant surgeon. In other words, he knows the immune system and his program starts with the number one triggers. But as with the pattern in my choice of interviewees, you will see that he too risked his entire practice and livelihood to follow his convictions when he saw clear evidence of a better way to help his patients. I suppose I should start a pivot award for those willing to pivot when presented with evidence of a better way. And with that, here's Dr. Stephen Gundry. I have the pleasure of sitting here with Dr. Stephen Gundry, uh, who is someone I think you will all want to listen to. Uh, If you are facing anything in the immune system, which affects us all, uh, I have rarely come across anyone with uh, as much, and certainly not more, knowledge. Uh, and he is someone who has had tremendous access um, and success uh, treating patients of all kinds. And with that, uh, welcome, Dr. Gundry.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Having having Appreciate it. it. Appreciate it.
0: Um, and I, you know, I would love if you could give the a l- little bit of your background on the evolution of your career. I greatly i think I think everyone would be beneficial to hear your background and how you came to think the way you do now <laughs>
1: uh well, I guess the uh, capsule summary is i uh, I went to Yale University as an undergraduate back in the dark ages where we could actually design our own major, and I uh had a thesis that I had to defend that you could uh, take a great ape, manipulate its environment and its food supply, and predict you would arrive at a human being. And I successfully defended my thesis and got an honors, and then gave it to my parents and went off to medical school. And I uh, became quite a famous heart surgeon, invented a lot of devices that are still used today to keep the heart alive during heart surgery, and became chairman of Cardiothoracic surgery at Loma Linda University, and uh, headed up the uh, xenotransplantation effort, uh, which involved putting pigs in baboons' heart, uh, putting pig hearts in baboons, and uh, got pretty famous at that and good at it. And then about seventeen years ago, I uh, met a gentleman who pretty much reversed his his inoperable coronary artery disease by uh, changing his diet and taking a bunch of supplements from a health food store. And I thought that was pretty impressive. And I was a big fat, overweight uh, heart surgeon, even though I ran 30 miles a week and went to the gym one hour a day and ate a healthy, low-fat diet. So I actually called my parents in San Diego and asked them to send me my thesis. And I put myself on my thesis and lost 50 pounds my first year and 20 pounds subsequently and have kept it off ever since. And I started taking a bunch of supplements and I started doing blood work on myself every few months and watching the changes. And then I started teaching all my patients at Loma Linda, who I operated on, how to do this and Their high blood pressure went away, and their diabetes went away, and their arthritis went away. So I, uh, about 15 years ago, quit my job, resigned my position, and I set up a, uh, a clinic in Palm Springs where I just asked people to, every three months, let me draw some blood off and send it to labs at Medicare and insurance pay for, and let's see what happens when I ask you to change what you eat and take a few supplements that, that you you know, you can buy at a health food store. And that resulted in my first book back in 2008, which was Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution. And then after that, I uh, had a large number of people with autoimmune disease show up on my doorstep and ask me what I knew about autoimmune disease, and I was frank and said, I don't know anything about autoimmune disease, but I know a whole lot about the immune system and what it's looking for and how to fool it. So if you want to play, I'm happy to play. So about half of my patients now uh, come to me with autoimmune disease. And that resulted in my uh, second book, The Plant Paradox, which uh, uh, has been on the New York Times bestseller list for 13 weeks. And... uh, So uh, one of the statements I make uh, in the book is that, in general, autoimmune disease is uh, completely reversible with uh, food changes and supplement. And in fact, just today, uh, I saw a patient who has chronically had markers for lupus and today, for the first time, those markers for lupus are gone, and I actually have a visiting physician from New, New Jersey uh, shadowing me for the next couple of days, and she was shocked that, in fact, uh, markers for lupus uh, could go away, because you know, we're all taught that that's impossible. So, she got to see it firsthand this morning.
0: Wow. I, I know some people that would be interested in that. Um, and... And what what are you seeing in the medical community and the reception? I'm curious. Because I do want to spend a lot of our time on on the actual I say system protocol that you've developed, uh way of thinking and approaching, but but I'm I'm curious what the broader medical community's reception has been.
1: Well, I think uh there's those people who um See this or read about it and are intrigued. Uh, I have a number of physicians who are, are my patients. Um, and for instance, this physician is visiting today is uh, wanted to see this in, in action. And you know, my, my clinic's an open book. Anybody can come and see what we do. Uh, there are other physicians who um, I think because I, I challenge their belief systems and I, I, I challenge their balance that they get pretty upset with, with what I say. And, you know, I'm always kind of reminded of uh, Carl Sagan, uh, who always said that progress is never made without, um, without questioning conventional wisdom. And it's only those people who have the courage to question conventional wisdom that progress is made. So uh, I guess I question conventional wisdom. And, you know, he always said science is based on experiment and on a willingness to challenge old dogma to an openness uh, to see what the universe really is. So you got to question conventional wisdom
0: what I what I am what what particularly intrigued me when I started uh, listening to uh, and getting your first book several years ago um, was that you're a surgeon, which I, I find historically surgeons are more mechanical, but to but but that your thinking has dramatically evolved and you were willing to question yourself. So that's for me, that's why I always uh, um, stand up and listen when people are willing to make significant, Career changes take risk. Um, you know what's what's curious to me is there's nothing that I've seen that you're suggesting that says that they that, that a patient has to get off their medication immediately or do anything immediately, Correct. other than diet and supplements, which should be seen at least initially as adjunctive. Which is what I, which is why I'm curious that you can start adjunctive if everything's getting better, then lower your medication, right? So, right. How, is, right? Is that the typical evolution of a lot of the, at least the sicker patients?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I'll I'll use, for instance, I'll use a statin drug on someone who's just had a heart attack or stents or had a bypass surgery from somebody else, and but I'll I'll use it uh, as a crutch or as a cast, and you you know you wouldn't. Wear a cast the rest of your life, and once the bone heals, uh, you don't need the cast anymore. And once we once we fix uh, the causes of why you needed uh, a statin, uh, then we don't have a problem anymore, and we can get rid of the statin.
0: Now, what I'd love to do is is get in a little bit more into the actual protocol. So starting with the way you, someone comes to you, they've been um, either diagnosed or have a problem. I assume most of your patients are coming to you. I'm guessing that they're coming to you and they already have a known problem. Um,
1: Uh, No, actually, that's not true. Um, I would say half of my patients come to me uh, to make sure they never get a problem.
0: Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's and, the West and, Coast. That's not on the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh,
1: y- you know, they, they may have a strong family history of coronary disease or a strong family history of autoimmune diseases, hmm. um, strong family history of diabetes, for, for instance. Um, but a lot of them, and a lot of people... Uh, are suspicious that they have an issue, but the traditional tests that most doctors order uh, aren't going to spot them. Uh, And uh, for instance, uh, the uh, physician who's visiting me today was shocked that there are far more accurate ways to look at kidney function than uh, the traditional uh, BUN and creatinine. And I Already this morning showed us several examples where the traditional kidney tests would have missed uh, stage three kidney failure that two of
0: the patients had. Hmm. So. And what? But you know, again, so, so so before we dig into the protocol, it, you know, do you keep track and the data on on the efficacy of the patient and, and how responsive they are?
1: Yeah. Yeah, luckily, uh, the labs that we use uh, have uh, running printouts that are given to the patients every time they come so that the patient can actually see uh, what they're doing and the effect of me asking them to you know, change something in their diet uh, or they and we will see it on inflammatory markers or we'll see it, for instance, on kidney function. Uh, one gentleman today went on a bit of a fruit and cookie kick and uh, you could see that his kidney function had uh, definitely deteriorated and uh, he had no idea that, that fruit could have been bad for, for his kidneys and in, in fact he, he could see it
0: with his own eyes on his blood test. So you know, if someone comes in, uh, well, why don't, why don't we start with someone who's got an autoimmune or serious illness? W- what are the things that you first test for?
1: Well, we, you know, we we obviously get the markers for autoimmune disease that are known about now, and new ones come along every year. But there's a, a fairly standard ba- uh, battery of tests that really any physician can, can order in their office. And uh, most people who have a known autoimmune disease, we, we obviously you know, see that. But a lot of people uh, haven't had the full gamut of the autoimmune tests. And many people with one autoimmune disease carry uh, markers for several other mm-hmm. autoimmune diseases. And that's a bit of a surprise to them. But uh, so then the next thing we do uh, in the case of autoimmune diseases, we almost always find that these people have a low vitamin D level. It's, it's almost universal. And by low, I mean 30 or 40. I, I think most vitamin D levels should be 70 to 100 uh, I've run my vitamin D level greater than 120 for the last 10 years, just to prove to people that I'm <laughs> still alive. So supposedly, some some doctors think that's a lethal dose, and I certainly thought it was a lethal dose uh, long ago. Um, and then uh, they have almost always universally low uh, fish oil uh, levels in their in their blood. And Uh, That's usually a tip-off that there's an autoimmune disease uh, possible or lurking. So uh, we we get their vitamin D levels up to preferably around 100, and we get what's called the omega-3 index, which looks at the amount of fish oil in you for the last two months up to greater than 8. And then we ask people to give up um, the major lectin-containing uh, food groups. And uh, uh, that's uh, in the book, and it's, it's, it's pretty easy to follow. It, what I ask people to do is basically eat like it was 9,999 years ago uh, when we were uh, hunter-gatherers, where we were eating leaves. We were eating tubers like sweet potatoes or yams. And we were eating grass-fed animals and uh, wild fish and shellfish. And then all of a sudden, we started eating grains and beans. And uh, kind of the rest is history. And grains and beans have a large number of lectins that, for instance, gluten happens to be a lectin. Uh, it's just one of many in in grains or wheat. And so we asked them to get these out of their diet. We asked them if they're going to eat beans, to use a pressure cooker, which will destroy all lectins except gluten. And then we asked them to get rid of the major new world foods, uh, particularly the nightshade family, like potatoes, eggplant, uh, peppers. Uh, tomatoes, goji berries, uh, and then we ask them to get rid of the American squash family, like zucchinis and pumpkins and cucumbers, and uh, then get rid of American cow milk products. And that's what we do, and then we look at their markers of inflammation, and we look at their markers of autoimmune disease. Um, Give you an example, the, the gentleman with the marker of lupus. Since I saw him last, he finally bought a pressure cooker uh, because he really did not want to give up his beans. He's uh, quite a vegetarian. And uh, so this was the first time he's been using the pressure cooker for three months now. And number one, he loves it. And number two, his marker for uh, lupus uh, is now for the first time uh, completely turned off. And the only thing he changed this time around is uh, he added a pressure cooker mm. for his beans.
0: You know, I'm um, living proof, uh, at least to me, of, of the lectin theory, because when I started February of 2016, after listening to a another uh, uh, podcast you did, um, I had uh, 36 years of shoulder pain since Little League uh, suddenly went away and I couldn't quite figure it out until, um, uh, until the following winter. So probably January of this year, uh, in December, I started cheating a little, uh, having some French fries here and there off my kid's plate and little things like that. And all of a sudden, uh, I started having severe ankle pain and, um, and then only when I was perfect, uh, including down to what I said to you before we started the podcast, when i finally take chicken out that may have been exposed to grain even though it says pasture raised um and then severe ankle pain that came out of nowhere without swelling um that no one could figure out uh just evaporated so um and and you and you do have the list at at uh at, on your website which is dr for doctor drgundry.com yeah. there's a great pdf that that we keep in our kitchen um so that that will be in the podcast notes, but for, for those listening, but uh, it's it's worth going and grabbing it. Um, so, how long does that usually take, uh, and and how soon do you follow up with any testing?
1: Well, we um, we usually test uh, every every three months. We've we've unfortunately gotten so busy that we're uh, we're now for our standard patients we're, we're checking them every six months but I, I think a three-month protocol is very reasonable most most insurance and Medicare will pay for these battery tests every three months uh, so that's actually where we kind of started the idea of doing it that way um, but you, you uh, I mean many times it's uh, within a few weeks quite frankly most people with autoimmune disease have, a uh, problem not only with their microbiome, the bugs that live in them and on them, but they also uh, almost invariably have uh, some degree of uh, what what's called leaky gut. I used to not believe in leaky gut at all. I, I now uh, think that probably every one of us uh, eating a Western diet has some degree of, of a leaky gut. And You can show very well that lectins are one of the major causes of uh, promoting a leaky gut by literally flipping a switch on the cells that line our intestines and making the uh, what are called tight junctions between these cells break. And the uh, the cells that line our intestines are only one cell thick. And the surface area of our intestine is the same as a tennis court. So, down there wrapped all around inside of you is a fairly impressive surface area with only one cell between everything you swallow and everything that's living down there and the rest of you, including your immune system. So, it's a... In a way, it's a horrible design. In in a way, it had to be designed like this, otherwise we couldn't uh, absorb food. Uh, but uh, ordinarily, we have some major defenses against lectins, like I talk about in the book, uh, but it's been pretty decimated. If you watch uh, football games, uh, you can you count up the injuries that occur to a football team, and pretty soon you can see that the The offensive line becomes porous or the defensive line becomes porous to a running back. And it's actually very much the same situation that goes on in us.
0: So so you put, you're you're first taking out what offends. And then you're also, you you have a significant supplement line um, to help replace and build up, I assume.
1: Yeah, you know, I... People say that I wrote the book to sell supplements. And in fact, uh, that's the farthest from the truth. In fact, the the supplements are at the end of the book. And for every one of the supplements that I manufacture, I give alternatives that you can buy at Costco or Trader Joe's or Vitacost or Amazon. And I even give the dose. So it's... Uh, I think it's rather humorous for those people who say, I wrote the book to sell supplements. Um, Supplements definitely help. I used to think supplements made expensive urine. Uh, They, in fact, don't. And uh, this physician who's visiting me today is seeing the results of blood tests where someone uh, took a supplement and it had a result that you can measure, and several other people who... uh, were on vacation or for whatever reason stopped taking their supplements. And you could see, in fact, that they weren't taking them and you could see the effect. So, you know, it's not conjecture, it's hard science. Um, And if people want to take my supplements, uh, quite frankly, I think I make some fantastic supplements. But if people don't want to take my supplements, that's fine. Uh,
0: I yeah, I mean, really what I'm focused on is, because you mentioned the microbiome before, um, you very clearly lay out the components and how you want to rebuild the bacteria, which you know, to me is feeding them, is helping them do what they do better than we could do by taking um, probiotics um, and that because i don't believe uh, you really have that you're in the prebiotic category which is where i personally over the years have found the most benefit um but can you just talk about how you go about rebuilding it putting aside you know which brand anyone buys but how you go about rebuilding the body with supplements
1: so you want to um kind of getting back so let's Let's suppose we buy the idea that we have a leaky gut. Um, since lectins are constantly forcing open the walls of our gut, one of the first things you really need to do is get lectins out. Uh, I liken this, let's suppose we're out on a lake or the ocean and our boat springs a leak. Uh, we basically have two options. We get a bucket and we start baling. Uh, And if the leak gets bigger, bigger, we're going to need a bigger bucket, or a bunch of us are going to have to go bail, or we're going to sink. And I view a lot of the treatment for leaky gut as basically giving people buckets to bail with. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a whole lot easier to plug the holes in the bottom of the boat, and then you can bail the water that's in there. But no more will come back in. So, I view getting lectins uh, out as really the first step of this process. Now, the second step that I talk about in the book, uh, ordinarily, we have over 10,000 different species of bacteria, fungi, viruses in our gut, many of whom are extremely good at eating lectins. In fact, believe it or not, there are bacteria that love to munch on gluten. But uh, our antibiotic use uh, in the West and our use of antibiotics in animal feed uh, has pretty much decimated our uh, normal microbiome. It's it's the equivalent of uh, putting napalm on a tropical rainforest. I mean, it it literally, in fact, there's some nice studies that show uh, one round of antibiotics, uh, two years later, you may have only a solitary species of bacteria in your gut, uh, two years later. So, but everybody says, well, let's take probiotics, which are living bacteria, and we'll, you know, reseed the forest. Well, that's all well and good. But if you burn down the forest uh, and then put lots of little seedlings, it's a little naive to think that that forest in all of its complexity will grow back in a matter of weeks. In fact, it could take years. So the other problem with most probiotics is that gastric acid destroys them. And so there's very little proof that living probiotics make it into the rest of our gut. There are some probiotics that are spore spore formers that cannot be eaten by acid. And I use those in my products, but you you can get those with other products as well. So, but the most important thing is, if we view probiotics as the seeds or the seedlings, then we have to, give them miracle grow. We have to fertilize them. And we have to give them what they want to eat. And what these probiotics want to eat are prebiotics. Now, unfortunately, these names came about in very odd ways. So, a probiotic doesn't mean much and a prebiotic doesn't mean much. But prebiotics are, in general, sugars, complex sugars and or resistant starches that are, as the sound implies, sugar molecules that resist digestion. And these are what good bacteria love. And there's evidence, uh, actually rather overwhelming evidence, that the more you give these good bacteria the things that they like to eat, the more that they actually elaborate uh, fatty acids that are called uh, short-chain fatty acids that uh, nourish our gut wall, that actually nourish our brain, and perhaps more importantly, are signaling molecules to our immune system that everything's kind of back to normal in our gut and everybody's singing kumbaya and our immune system doesn't have to go uh, get all riled up and attack things. So uh, prebiotics of the two probiotics and prebiotics, prebiotics, uh, in my opinion, and, and many others, are far more important. Okay.
0: And and what about the other, you know, greens and other things? You're I mean that's just all deacidifying and
1: yeah. <laughs> well, so one of the things that uh, early on, I got interested in a class of plant compounds called polyphenols. And how people remember that is phenol," like polywana cracker." And polyphenols are plant compounds that, that manipulate bacteria. They actually, uh, bacteria actually eat polyphenols and in many, many cases, the byproduct of the bacteria eating these polyphenols are the active compounds that actually de-age us, that keep our brain smart. Uh, the miracle ingredient in red wine, resveratrol, is a polyphenol. So uh, early on in my work, uh, I found that certain polyphenols like grapeseed extract or uh, pycnogenol, which is a patented French maritime tree bark, uh, had measurable effects on how flexible our blood vessels were and how sticky uh, our blood vessels were, how attractive our blood vessels were to cholesterol sticking. And I've published and presented this data, and I've even shown that if you stop these polyphenols, that your blood vessels will become sticky again, and that the flexibility of your blood vessels will uh, stiffen again. And then if you re-add them, the flexibility returns. So these are these are measurable things. They're reproducible things. So uh, actually, my, my first product was uh, Vital Reds, which is a, is a combination of a number of plant polyphenols, along with uh, spore-forming probiotic. And then there are uh, plant polyphenols in green things as well, particularly uh, dark greens and the cruciferous vegetables. And people, unfortunately, don't eat nine cups of vegetables every day like my friend, uh, Dr. Terry Walls, who cured herself of MS, does. So I made uh, primal plants to not only do this, but to also get a number of compounds that have been shown to modulate the immune system and the, the wall of the gut to resist lectins and so on and so forth. And then my third product in the triumvirate is uh, prebiothrive, which as the name sounds is prebiotics. And uh, a bunch of prebiotics that have been designed to feed friendly bugs and mm. works pretty good.
0: And then um, what about on, on glucose levels in the body and, um, and sugar and, and, and also like what, what you'd recommend patients do when they are um, cheating, so to speak, <laughs> how to limit the damage?
1: Well, uh, I, think, I, I think everybody's probably aware that sugar in its many forms is, is one of the great mischief makers in terms of our, our overall health, the length of time we're going to live. And more and more, we're beginning to realize that uh, what's happening in, at the brain is directly related to uh, sugar. There's uh, type 3 diabetes, which is better known as dementia. And we now know that the brain becomes what's called insulin resistant. It's no longer able to use sugar properly. And so sugar is uh, one of the great evils. One one of the things that most people don't realize is that uh, protein is converted into sugar in, in most of us. Uh, It's a process called gluconeogenesis, and um, there's two large studies that I talk about in The Plant Paradox showing that consumption of animal protein is equal to sugar in causing diabetes and obesity, equal to sugar, and that's because protein converts into sugar. So uh, just because you're having that boneless, skinless chicken breast and avoiding the uh, bread and French fries, it doesn't mean that you're not eating a large amount of sugar in that supposedly sugar-free chicken breast. And this was actually one of the mistakes that Dr. Atkins made. And I had the pleasure, with my first book, to getting introduced to uh, Dr. Adkins' ghostwriter and his head nurse. Uh, who uh, confirmed that Dr. Atkins uh, was unaware that protein turned to sugar. And that's why, uh, unfortunately, he did die a fat man. So you really want to limit uh, animal protein. And and I say that reluctantly because I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, where Uh, Beef is king, and cheese is king, and I still consider myself a a fine uh, cheesehead Packer fan. But nevertheless, these things uh, are also problems. I mean, there's ways around this. Um, There's certainly very good products out there. I make a product called Glucose Defense, which you can take before meals. There's a good product at Costco called Cinsulin, which works in a different way, but it's also a good product. Uh, I just introduced my product to absorb uh some of the sugars you eat and some of the fats you eat called tri trim uh, It's actually the result of about a year of research on my part, and it works um, it's pretty interesting how it works but so there's a lot of options and again, you don't have to go to gundry m d to get them <laughs>
0: but if you want to come on um, by <laughs> and and what are what are some of the uh, what I would call worst offenders like you know fried carbohydrates or if if people are or yeah
1: yeah that's a yeah that's a good question um, so fat per se has really gotten a bad rap if you went on an eighty percent fat diet with a carbohydrates, and 10% protein, uh, you will affect uh, not only dramatic weight loss, but you'll also, uh, quite frankly, starve a lot of cancer cells and you'll give your brain a real boost. Now, so people hear the word of a high-fat diet and they assume that all you have to do is eat fat, but they somehow think that... um, a French fry is uh, is the perfect combination of getting fat into your mouth. In fact, one of the worst culprits is the combination of fat and carbohydrates. Uh, in fact, there's probably no be- no worse combination. So that uh, delicious uh, glazed donut, or the French fries, um, or the bag of uh, potato chips, or healthy uh f- deep fried chips uh with with olive oil instead are, is actually really packs a one two punch so try to avoid the combination of fat and then and what about the way you,
0: you um you recommend for either inter- intermittent fasting or and, and and how you see that impact your patients over time
1: Yeah. Um, so intermittent fasting basically means that you're going to go longer and longer periods of time, uh, between meals. And, um, Dr. Dale Bredesen, who, uh, recently published his amazing book, The End of Alzheimer's is probably one of the most knowledgeable people in brain health and protecting the brain. And, um, uh, You can actually watch his and my podcast together um, by just typing in Gundry Bredesen YouTube and it'll come right up. Uh, Anyhow, he and I absolutely think that the longer you go between meals, the better your brain health is. And what does that entail? Uh, He thinks a minimum uh, every night is to go. Uh, 12 hours between meals, uh, preferably 20, uh, 14. If you carry the ApoE4 gene, which is sometimes called the Alzheimer's gene, which about 30% of people carry, you really want to stretch it out to about 16 hours. Now, what that means in practical purpose is you really want to try to finish dinner around 6 o'clock at night. So that you have about a four-hour window of not eating before you go to bed. And and we can talk about why you should do that in a minute. And then the next meal you should eat is preferably 14 hours later. So that would be about 8 o'clock at night because you're sleeping. Or better yet, if you can go 16, that would mean your first meal would be about 10 o'clock. And that's uh, the more you can do that, the better your brain health is uh, long term. And the other way to do intermittent fasting, which uh, is called the 5 2 diet, and there's various iterations of this, but basically, two days a week, you eat about 500 calories, and the other days a week, you eat uh, regularly. And this has been shown to uh, act uh, like uh, intermittent fasting. And then there's uh, Dr. Walter Longo's research at USC that would suggest that a five-day-a-month vegan diet of about seven to 800 calories a day acts as if you were intermittently fasting the entire month. So there's, there's lots of ways to skin a cat. And w- one of the things we all have to realize is all cultures, all great religious traditions, have a uh, fasting protocol as part of their uh, religious practice. And uh, the more all of us look, at the positive effects of fasting, uh, the more we're beginning to see um, the effects that fasting has in a positive way.
0: And then, um, so so effectively, if I'm trying to summarize, um, people come to you; they are you're you're trying to take things out. And then, what I like, and wh- where I keep coming back to it, I what I wanted to name this podcast in the first place except the name sounds terrible is getting every edge you can get and i speak that as a patient um i I, actually there's one thing i did want to ask you about about the 80 you know using 80 percent fat and just putting a label of ketosis on and ketogenic diet but do do you suggest that people cycle on and off of that over time or yes um and uh
1: I I think um Dr. McCullough um says this best um we've uh, we we've become uh, quite close and and talk quite a bit now he uh takes things to extreme in testing things out and and good for him and he found uh, out the hard way that uh, continuous ketosis is is very rough. And it actually, you will start to underperform. On the other hand, um, if you break ketosis uh, about one night a week by adding carbohydrates, that's uh, one, I think, really good way to break ketosis. Now, on the other hand, I, what I try to do is uh, try to follow what I think my research suggests that our ancient ancestors did, and that is they cycled seasonally and that they uh, gained weight primarily during the summer, during fruit season, and then they uh, lost weight during the winter when there wasn't much food to eat. And so they would cycle into a storage system and then be in ketosis for a good part of the winter unless they Ran into something they could eat. So I tend to, well, I don't tend to. For the last 10 years, I, uh, in the winter, I try to stay in ketosis during the week and then break uh, ketosis uh, on the weekends. And then the summer, I uh, try not to do much ketosis. So that, and that's, hmm. that's worked for me for the last 10
0: years. Well, I, you know, I do, I, I also, uh, uh, in the back of your book uh you have quite a few recipes which are which are great um there 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 is one thing before we finish up and i will in the show notes uh you know not just link to your site but but more specific to certain areas um but but there are um a, a couple of other things in particular that um, you hone in on, on, on what is healthy food. Um, and, and while we talked about lectins generally, um, when I talk to friends, I have a hard time convincing them uh, of, of how unhealthy some of these seemingly healthy things can be. And, I, and I'll say this quickly. And that is, I first tried uh, macrobiotics almost seven years ago. Um, and I had a little bit of a health scare. And when I started, I went up to the Kushi Institute and I met with everyone, and I was very strict, uh, especially in my food preparation, and it mm-hmm. helped me tremendously. But the second I tr- I stopped pressure cooking everything, which goes to the lectins, and the second I maybe had some brown rice at a restaurant and didn't soak and pressure cook it, um, you know, I wound up not benefiting nearly as much. And yet I kept on it, and it didn't. It you know the the benefits went away. Um, but can you just take a quick minute or so, if possible, to keep it to that, about why some of these healthy foods aren't so healthy after all.
1: Well, let's use brown rice. So, 4 billion people use rice as their staple. And yet, 4 billion people uh, take the hull off of rice and eat it white. And surely, 4 billion people can't be that stupid. Uh, It's because the hull of rice has a number of lectins. And one of the best examples is the Okinawan diet, uh, some of the oldest living people in the world. And 80% of their calories are sweet potatoes. And uh, rice uh, constitutes about 6% of their calories, and uh, they eat white rice. And the researchers who eventually wrote the Okinawan diet book, uh, in that book, say, gee, imagine how much healthier these people would be if we could talk them into using brown rice Instead of white rice, they really do. And it's like, holy cow, you're studying some of the healthiest, oldest living people in the world and studying their diet. And a good researcher would say, isn't that interesting? They use white rice. What is it that they know that we should learn from this rather than presumptively thinking that brown rice is good for you, which of course it's not? And, you know, so those are the sort of things we really have to step back and say, you know, conventional wisdom says brown rice is good for you, but 4 billion people, I guess, are flaunting conventional wisdom and eating their rice white. Why is that? Well, it's because they're getting rid of the lectins.
0: Fantastic. So I do have to ask you, um, uh, or or I guess, a a, a pair of questions. Uh, One is if you could only take out one or two things, and this may be self-answering, but if you could only take out one or two things from your diet or your lifestyle, Um, what would those be? And then on the other side, what would you add?
1: So take out uh, grains and beans, and if you have to eat the nightshades, peel and de-seed them. That's actually quite easy to do. Um, What you really want to add is you want to add as many cruciferous vegetables as you uh, can tolerate. And you want to add resistant starches, you want to add tubers, you want to add green plantains, you want to add jicama. Uh, if you have to have a grain or pseudo grain, sorghum and millet don't have a lectin because they don't have a true haul. So those are really quite good. And, and oh, by the way, uh, stay tuned, the Plant Paradox Cookbook will be out uh, April 10th, we just put all 110 recipes to bed as of this morning. So it's it's on the way, and it's fantastic. And, you know, my job is to try and make my crazy requests uh, not only edible, but easy to make and delicious and stuff that you'll uh, do over and over again. So it, it's coming.
0: That's great. But for uh, now, use the recipes. I think there, I mean, there are more and more resources online that are provided. Things like that, so I will try to find those yes. as well because I know a big yeah. part of what you're doing is missionary, and you're already, um, you know, there's already I think a six month wait to see you so or talk to you on the phone. Um, so I, I know I know you're out to to help everyone. Um, I want to thank you uh, I, again. As I said earlier, I will link out, and um, there are several other great interviews that you did that got into um, the biology and the evolution better, and I didn't I didn't want to just simply repeat everything here. uh, So I will link to those as well for listeners. So uh, Dr. Gunter, thank you very much. This was great.
1: All right. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it.